everybody. Welcome back to our web series, Acing a Tennis Career. I'm Natalie Dagnall, TSR and Community Coordinator for USTA New Jersey. And today we have Gigi Fernandez on our show. Hi, Gigi. Hi, how are you? Good. It's Thank great to see you. Thank you for having me. So with this web series, we're interviewing people, different providers who show us their careers in tennis and how they've evolved and changed over the years. And we're really excited to hear from one of the top doubles tennis players of all time and see how her career has evolved. Let me give you a little bit of background about Gigi. I'm sure you all know her, but I'll tell you, tell you for those of you who don't. Gigi is considered to be one of the best doubles tennis players of all time. She's a Hall of Famer, winner of 17 Grand Slam doubles titles and two Olympic gold medals. And in 2000, Gigi was named Puerto Rican Athlete of the Century. Gigi is now the founder of Gigi Fernandez Tennis and spends her time coaching adult players, traveling the country doing clinics and camps and hosting specialist tours to Grand Slam events. Gigi, thank you so much for coming on our show. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Happy to be here. So how are you finding your time in lockdown? It must be quite a, a change having been somebody who travels so much. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a change, but I am actually really enjoying it. It's the first time in probably my life that I have not traveled. The only time in my life that I remember not traveling was after 9-11. Uh, I think after 9-11, I was four months without going anywhere. Um, so we're, I'm at two months now. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, and, and I'm actually really, really enjoying it. Um, I'm loving being at home and having some normalcy and spending a lot of time with my kids and my family and just doing normal things. The Florida t weather has been glorious this, this spring and um, just, you know, getting out for a lot of bike rides and, um, and just kind of hunkering down. It's been, it's been good for the soul, put it that way. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm pleased to hear it. Well, let's, yeah. let's dive into your backstory, Gigi. Um, let's go back to the beginning. When did you start tennis? When did you first pick up a racket? Oh, God, we're going that far back. Um, <laughs> I started playing tennis when I was three. My, I had older brothers who played, uh, and I just wanted to be like them. So they were taking lessons. So I would just grab a racket and go hit against the wall. Uh, I begged for lessons um, and wouldn't, wouldn't get them until I was seven years old. I had my first lesson at seven. I played my first match at eight and I lost 6 0 6 0. <laughs> so uh, there's definitely hope if you start out not so well. Um, and then I started playing, then I was very good right away in Puerto Rico. There was a lot of, not a lot of competition and um, I had really good hand coordination. So I was number one in every age group uh, in Puerto Rico and two above. I was number, I made the finals of the Puerto Rico National Doubles Championship in the adult division when I was 12. So I already wow. always had a, a really knack for doubles. Um, you know, I was lucky that the Puerto Rico Tennis Association was one of the 17 sections of the USDA. It's now the Caribbean Tennis Association. And I was able to play USDA nationals. So I would go to nationals in the summer and I was discovered by a couple of pros or, um, coach, or coaches from uh, universities and they offered me uh, scholarships. So I went to Clemson University for one year. And when I went to Clemson, it was the first time in my life that I played tennis every day, every day, every day, every day, first time in my life. So the improvement was meteoric or like a meteor, I don't know, meteoric, right? So I made the finals of the NCAAs as a freshman and I was the last player admitted into the NCAAs because the selection committee made a mistake and accepted 65 girls instead of 64. 
So two <laughs> had to play a pre-qualifying to get in. And that was me. And I made it all the way to the finals. Uh, I lost to a girl named Beth Herr, who was number one player for USC, the number one player in the country in, in college tennis. And also she was ranked 27th in the world uh, because at the time college players had pro rankings. And But, you know, if you think back to 1982 or 83, actually, there were no computers, there was no internet, there was no phones, there was no, I don't even think we had faxes yet, right? So when somebody, could somebody make the claim that they were 27th in the world, it was like, yeah, right. Yeah, and I'm 28, you know, <laughs> you're full of it. So I don't know if I really believe that I had almost beat, because uh, the match was seven, six and a third. I had a match point. Um, I got hooked up match point. Her mother came to me after the match and, you know, I was celebrating. I was at the net waiting to shake hands and she called the ball out. And her mother said to me, the ball was in. So I should have been NCAA champion. But, um, but the first time that I really thought like I had a you know, a chance to be a pro was a couple months later. I watched, I was watching Wimbledon and Beth was playing Billie Jean King in the center court at Wimbledon on the round of 16 on the, on the first uh, middle Monday, you know, obviously packed crowd and she was beating her. She ended up losing eight, six in the third. And I thought if Beth Hurricane take Billie Jean King to, you know, a third set tiebreaker at Wimbledon and I almost beat her, <laughs> you know, I thought maybe I someday have a chance. So what I did was I, I took the fall off. Um, and when played pro tournaments like challengers and whatnot. And then after the end of the fall, I was ranked 85 in the world in singles. So then I turned pro, I didn't go back to college. And then of course the rest, the rest was history. So was that the first time you really thought about going pro or had people kind of spoken to you about it when you were 12, you know, like you were doing so well at that young, young age. I mean, people would say, some people would say to me, Oh, you can be top 10 in the world. And it was like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you even know? I mean, we're in this island in Puerto Rico where there's like, I think we had one pro tournament come by, you know, every three years, some little challenger with players ranked, you know, a hundred to 500. Like who, who can say that somebody who's 12 is going to be top 10 in the world, you know? So I never really believed any of what people were saying. Um, so, I mean, and, and it just was not raised to be a professional tennis player. Like my, in Puerto Rico in the 60s, 60s and 70s, when I was, girls were raised to have, to be wives and have kids. I was supposed to get married and have kids. And uh, there was no other female athlete that was a professional athlete in Puerto Rico. I didn't know actually an, any athlete, professional or not. I didn't know any other females that excelled at the world stage that I could say, I want to be like them. I'm the first professional female athlete in, to come out of Puerto Rico. So, so it just was not part of my thought process or, or the conversation at my house that, that I could be a professional tennis player. So then you suddenly found yourself having had one year in college and you suddenly found yourself as a pro. That must have been quite a, a shock. And It was very hard. And I almost actually, um, you know, the thing that was hard about it is that when, when I, you know, I had a very successful junior career and I only lost a couple of matches as a college player. And then when you turn pro, you lose every single week. Every week you lose, 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 lose. Even if you win three times and, you know, make the semis, you're still losing every single week. And I just didn't, didn't know how to lose. Uh, I didn't understand. I wasn't mature enough to understand that uh, losing our learning experiences and that you learn more from losses. Uh, so four years into my career, I was almost going to quit. I was went to the 88 US Open and that was going to be my last Grand Slam. I told my agent I was going to be done after the, after the year ended, but that was going to be my last Grand Slam. And he's like, well, before you do that, why don't you go meet Jim Lair, who's a sports, very famous sports psychologist. 
And I said, sure, I'll give it a try. So I went to meet him and the help, the, the things that he helped me with helped me win the U.S. Open. So I went from wanting to quit to winning the U.S. Open in like a two week period. So, so then I went into, I went on this journey of um, kind of trying to understand the mental side of tennis because I figured if he, if he could trick me into playing great and off to win a uh, grand slam, then I needed to figure out how to be mentally tougher. And, uh, and then, then what transpired after that was pretty remarkable, you know, not to brag about myself, but when, when uh, Natasha and I um, got together in 92 and we won 14 grand slams in five years, which is more grand slams in a five-year period than anybody in the history of tennis, male or female, singles or doubles or mixed or, or anything. So it was like th- five intense years of winning, you know, almost three grand slams a year. Um, and I attribute that to the, the, the shift that I, that I had, that I did mentally and all the work that I did with meditation and breathing and visualization and, um, all the mental skills that I learned from, um, Julie Anthony was a a big influence and also, um, going to the Deepak Chopra center in Lancaster, Massachusetts, learning transcendental meditation and and diaphragmatic breathing and uh, visualization and all that. So it was pretty a pretty cool experience uh, that seems like happened a century ago. <laughs> wow! So, so you would put put those people as major influences in your life, the kind of mental people, as opposed to just necessarily the technique oriented coaches. Yeah, because you know I had really God given talent. I had exceptional hand eye coordination, and I got away with talent. You know, I I went like I said, I went to college, never practicing, um, never having a really practice routine, and or or it's regimen, you know, I just would hit once or twice a month sometimes and I would play uh, my, my tournaments in Puerto Rico and I'd win them. So I never really had the discipline. I remember Billie Jean King, who was a friend of Julie Anthony, one of my uh, my coaches, uh, and very early in my career, she came she came to me and she says, geez, you need to get some discipline. And I remember walking away from that conversation going, what does she mean? What is discipline? What, what is discipline? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. So, you know, I was 20, you know, or 20 or 19 or 20 years old, you know, and it was like, tell me how to get it. I'll do it. You tell uh, me, yeah. you t- barely tell me what I need to do. <laughs> what is this one? Give me the. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it was just this raw talent that um, had developed on tour. The other thing was like in Puerto Rico in the sixties, the pro, the coaches would not teach girls topspin because we weren't strong enough. So even though Borg had just kind of made topspin the new, the new way to play um they would still only teach slice and flat so i went to when i turned pro i had a flat forehand and a slice backhand so i learned to hit topspin forehand and i learned my topspin backhand while you won the tour which is crazy that could not happen anymore these days but it could still happen back then yeah so let's talk about the doubles a little bit more what made you decide that doubles was your thing so you know i never really made that decision um i always continue to try to improve my singles and I was 17 in the world. And I was always, my goal for singles was always to make it to the championships. The championships was the top 16 players. I was very close a couple of years. Um, but what, what would happen, it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because I would, because I did better in doubles. And so I would be playing just about every weekend. I was playing, you know, quarter semis, finals, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then I would have to fly out on Monday to the next tournament. And then I would have a singles match on Tuesday. So I just spent, four days doing nothing but doubles and traveling and not have a singles match. So, you know, it was very hard to um, do well in singles because I was doing so well in doubles, but I really played singles my whole career until the last year. It was the last year that I only played doubles. So 
um, you know, so top 17 in the world, 17 in the world is not a bad tennis tennis <laughs> career, but it just shadows in comparison with, with my doubles career. Well, your doubles was so successful. And, and tell us a bit about your choosing of your partners. You obviously played with Natasha for many years, but tell us a little yeah. bit more about how that dynamic works, like having to be so reliant on a partner in, for your winning. Um, so on tour, there's a, like a certain pecking order, like usually the higher ranked player asks the lower ranked player to play with them. So I would always, um, you know, when I was coming up, what really changed my life really was Martina Navratilova asked me to play with her. I was, um, it was 1990, so it was my second year. It was two years after I won that first Grand Slam, but I had not yet won another one. Um, so I was destined to be a one slam wonder. Um, <laughs> and and um, Shriver got hurt. Her, her, she had a bad, bad shoulder. So Martina asked me to play the US Open with her in 1990. And that just put me in this mental mode that I thought, oh, my God, the best player in the history of tennis thinks that I'm the best, next best doubles player available to play with her. Wow. So I must be good, right? And just gave me this huge motivation. Um, and then uh, from then on, <clears throat> I, I, I was asked to play by Jana Novotna. We were, very, we were a very good team. <clears throat> we won the French Open in 91. Uh, we got to the finals of Wimbledon in 92, or 91, rather. And a really unfortunate thing happened after that final. Um, we, uh, Yana and I were playing Natasha and Larissa in the finals, and we lost that match, 6-4 in the third. Yana Dolfault in a match point. And when the match ended, she dumped me. <laughs> she said, you know, I don't want to play with you anymore. And I was like, wait a second. You Dolfaulted. I should be dumping you, right? <laughs> and we just won the Frenchman in the finals of Wimbledon. So I, did, I couldn't understand how anyone does that, right? Well, unbeknownst to Natasha and I, both Yana and Larissa had agreed that they were going to play together up from that Wimbledon final on. So after that uh -huh. match ended, whoever won, it didn't matter. We were both going to get dumped. So Yana and Larissa went off and started playing together. And it took Natasha and I about nine months to become a team. So we became a team the following April. And of course, who did we play in the 92 Wimbledon final? The two of them. So the <laughs> dumpies were playing the dumpers. And how bad do you think we wanted to win that match? <laughs> Motivation. So, yeah, we played them in five out of the six next grand some finals and we never lost to them so wow. karma works yes exactly it's a great story i love it yeah so let's let's use a bit of our time to talk about this so you had such an incredible career you come out of tennis and then did you think gosh i want to do something else or did you know you wanted to stay in tennis yeah no i when i quit tennis i was going to do something I didn't care what I did. I wanted to be something other than G. Fernandez, a tennis player. I just did not want to be identified as a tennis player anymore. And I went completely far away from the game. I was, you could say I was burnt out. Um, I did a lot of different things. Like right away, I got my real estate license. I lived in California at the time. I started an internet company, raised $3 million in private venture capital money. Um, we had an, uh, you know, a product on the internet back in the late, late, 90, late 90s, 1998, 99. Um, and then the bubble burst, the original bubble burst in 2000. So then the company kind of folded. We moved to Florida. I started a couple other businesses and I kept failing at my businesses. You know, they were not being successful. So finally I got my MBA. <laughs> it's like, okay, maybe I need wow. to learn how to run a business before I try to run a business. <laughs> yes, try right. I mean, being a good tennis player does not make you a good business person. Uh, even though I thought at the time it, it did. Um, so once I got my MBA, I learned really how to you know, I learned about marketing and accounting and, you know, just prop basic business, uh, sound business principles. And, uh, and then I decided that 
what I was going to start was a company that I knew a lot about, which was tennis. And uh, Gigi Fernandez Tennis was born four years ago, and it's you know, or five, and very successful. Um, very happy with it. You know, I, I love teaching. I started coaching um, recreational players when I became the director of tennis at Chelsea Pierce, which is where I met you. <laughs> and now uh, we had a great time on the court. I, I just made so many friends, including you, and just so many great friends. It was wonderful to learn that and then discover the social side of tennis. You know, tennis was not a social sport at all for me all my life. It was more uh, competitive, kind of cutthroat. Um, I really don't have, I don't, can't say I have true friends for my 15 years on, uh, uh, career. Maybe Natasha, I consider a friend, but, in, but you know, in 15 years to not have made one true friend. Is, I have acquaintances, you know, I'm friends with Martina and I think, you know, they're there for you if you need them, but, but it's different, you know, because we're, there's always that competition. competition. So, um, so it's great that I discovered the social part and um, just made a, amazing friends in Connecticut that I, I'm still friends with. And, um, and now I'm here in Tampa, um, back to where my family is. My mom lives here, my sister lives here. So I have 11 year old twins. So I'm just enjoying being a mom and being a, uh, a family person. <laughs> I remember you saying to me how coming back into tennis just made you so happy and you realized what an incredible space it still had in your life and that that was so uplifting for you at that point. Yeah, realize. I mean, it took a, it, it really took a while. But in, after I had maybe like a 10-year break from tennis, I was able to have a different perspective on it, which and that is that tennis has given me so much. It just has given me everything. You know, if I didn't have tennis, I'd have no idea where I'd be. And I just felt this really strong need to give back. And I always have, you know, actually when I retired, um, when I, at the retirement ceremony, I read a poem from Emily Frost about if I can stop one, one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. I don't know if you know that, that poem, but I I really left the tour to do, try to do good things and try to um, do other things other than just being a self-centered entitled, you know what, (laughs) right? So, um, so, so I do, I would just give back. I, I feel like I give back as much as I can and um, sharing my knowledge is, is a way and any, you know, I do a lot of charity work and I do a lot of events um, for, for you know, appearances for, for charities and whatnot. So I help, I mean, I wish I could do more, um, but I do, I do what I can. I try to balance everything out. It's a lot going on. And what about Puerto Rico? How do you connect yourself with your, your, your sort of home community? From the oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, um, you can skip it if you want. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, I I feel one hundred percent Puerto Rican. You know, I there's that saying that says you can take Puerto Rico out of you can take the girl out of Puerto Rico, but you can't take Puerto Rico out of the girl. That's me. Um, I have a really soft heart. I obviously, was born and raised there. I left when I was nineteen. I did all my growing up there, and my all my best friends from high school. I still have. We still. That those are two friends. Your friends from high school. I still yeah, have yeah. those. Um, so, but you know, it was it was uh, it's been a very conflicted relationship because I chose to represent the United States um, in the 1992 Olympics. So I actually didn't choose. I didn't really have a choice uh, because if I um, if I played for for Puerto Rico, first of all, I don't know if I would have made the team because I was a doubles player and I there was not another player that I could have played with. There's not another ranked player or college player or any player from Puerto Rico that I could play with. So we would have not even made the Olympics. So I made the, what I thought was the only choice was, which was to play with Mary Jo Fernandez. Um, and we won the gold medal, but we, I won it for the U S and now Puerto Rico. And 
a lot, I'd say the majority of Puerto Ricans still don't, don't accept that. Um, in fact, when Monica Puig won her gold medal in 2016, all, you know, the whole world saying Monica Puig's first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal. And it used to drive me crazy <laughs> because I am Puerto Rican and I won a gold medal. If you want to say that Monica Puig is the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal representing Puerto Rico, oh, Puerto Rico that yeah. is correct statement. But I am the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal. I don't care. I'll debate that till the day I die. Uh, even to the point where she left Puerto Rico when she was two and developed in the United States, whereas I developed in Puerto Rico until I was 18. So, you know, it's like, it's a, you know, continues to be an argument that I try to avoid. Um, and yeah, it's kind of a, one of the sour notes of my tennis career, but, um, but I, I couldn't, I wouldn't do it any differently. You know, I just wouldn't, I have two Olympic gold medals and there, you know, if and I you inspire, for, you inspire all those kids from Puerto Rico, you inspire people yeah. that there's still that, that space and place. And right. Yeah. So love Puerto Rico. I am it's <laughs> in my heart. It'll never go away. <laughs> so Shishi, let's pivot a little and just quickly touch on before I leave you. Uh, some of the things that you've done that have been so interesting, for example, you've taken adults on tours to all sorts of uh, grand slams. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that because that's kind of fun and different. Yeah. So Gigi Fernandez Tennis it's a kind of multifaceted company. So I have online products that I sell, um, doubles program. I have a, right now I have a free workshop for a product called the roadmap to mental dominance, which is free and available to anybody who wants it. If you go roadmap to mental dominance.com, you can sign up there. Um, I also have various just online products that I offer. So that's one part. The second thing I do is I do camps and clinics. The clinics are around the country. I travel around the country and do, kind of introduction to the Gigi method, which is my doubles instructional program. And then I do multi-day camps here in Tampa. Um, and those are great. I mean, if you are listening and if you and your girlfriends or your and your guy friends uh, are going to go to to doubles camp, my camp is the one to come to because I think it's the best camp there is. I mean, you truly learn doubles strategy and tactics. Um, you know, a lot, one, one of the reasons that I started doing this is I was with a group of friend, girls from Chelsea Piers uh, back when I was working at Chelsea Spears, and they asked me if I would go with them to a, to a tennis camp. It was uh, there were 16 girls going, and the camp was here in in Florida. I don't want to won't mention which, but it's in Tampa. And they wanted to they wanted me to come with them and hang out. I said sure, I'll go. So and to kind of make sure that what they were doing was appropriate and whatnot. So I spent four days with them, watching them, just kind of hanging out, watching, observing, and finally on the afternoon of the fourth day i went up to the director and i said are they going to do any doubles drills <laughs> we've been here for four days and these girls have yet to do a doubles drill and all they do is play doubles that's all adults yeah, do right? most doubles. so i was like oh my god if this is one of the most renowned academies for adults in the world and they're not teaching doubles then there's definitely a niche here so i started offering adult camps here um you know six or seven times a year i i run them i go around the weather like can't really do them in the summer in florida um so that's what i do and then from the people that are part of my students who i call my students that have come to a clinic or camp then i take them to wimbledon and i take them to the labor cup and uh and it's pretty special to um go to wimbledon with them and show them wimbledon for the first time and and to see how excited people get when they first walk into the um into the gates at wimbledon it's kind of fun to be a part of that and uh and it's kind of worked out really well 
that's awesome. And you've chosen to yeah. mostly teach teach adults rather than kids. So I have. Yeah, that direction. You know, I when I was at Chelsea Piers, I I taught kids, and I have taught everything from I, the little three year olds when my kids were little. I would go in their classes and teach that, and um, all the way up to like eighty years old and uh, grandson champions Lisa Raymond and Sam Stoser. Uh, I didn't like traveling. You know, once my, I have eleven year old twins, so for the past eleven years, I didn't want to coach a pro because I didn't want travel. Um, so I just found that coaching adults was the most satisfying for me, the most fulfilling. Um, I didn't, they didn't, uh, adults don't speak back like kids speak back. Um, <laughs> yeah. and they respect a lot. You know, some kids would, uh, they don't really understand, uh, you know, a 10 year old doesn't understand they're getting coached by a grandson champion. They, they, they would see me the same as they would see, uh, you know, Jason or whatever other pro was there. Right. So there's the lack of respect that I, I had trouble with. Uh, whereas the adults were like so happy to be in the court with me and so rest, so respectful and so um, appreciative. So, and then I made started making friends and it's like socializing and going out for drinks for lunch and you know and it just became like a fun, really fun way to be involved in tennis. So, um, so that's why it kept kept it that way. That's great. Some, so you combined friends your, your over the last passions yeah, and friendships my passions. tennis. Tennis and travel and, and uh, friendships, yep, and all kind of wrapping in a little bow. So works out really well. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to pivot and ask you the last question, which is just like this and that thing before I leave you. Yeah, um, okay. So just which player would you rather rally with, uh, Federer or Nadal? Roger. Uh, Let's top spin. <laughs> ah, that's right. Uh, Djokovic, Murray. Murray. Sharapova, Serena. Serena. Sitsipas, Severin. Uh, Sitsipas. McEnroe, Connors. McEnroe. Sampras, Agassi. Agassi. Billie Jean King, Everett. Thai. Ah, good. Uh, golf or Osaka? A golf. Keys or Stevens? Uh, Keys. Uh, and Bob Bryan or Mike Bryan? Uh, both. <laughs> you should be out there playing doubles with them, really. Um, yeah, right. I'll, yeah. Champions in their own right. Shiji, thank you for coming on our show. It's been amazing hearing your story. Um, I look forward thank to catching you. up with you soon, sometime, hopefully in time. All right. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Keep doing the Bye. great work. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Bye.